0: Hi, I'm Samantha Boffin and this is Talking Creative, the art of voiceover directing. The podcast that helps you find, prep and direct the perfect voice artists for your projects so you can get the most from every single booking. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Talking Creative, the art of voiceover directing. Right now, it's December 2020, and I am absolutely concentrating on feeling Christmassy. So I'm watching a lot of Christmas movies, and I've been listening to loads of festive themed audiobooks. Some people love music, I happen to love books. Audiobooks are incredible. Fact or fiction, I totally get lost in them, if, and this is the really important bit, if the narrator pulls me into the world of the book. But what is it about a really good narrator that works, and how do they learn to pull people like me into their story? The answer, as with most things in life, is usually because they've really worked at it, they've learnt their craft, and that is where a good audiobook coach comes in. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking to Sean Pratt, audiobook narrator, actor, and audiobook coach. To be honest, there's not much he doesn't know about the craft of the audiobook. I loved doing this interview. It covers so much how he started narrating, why he finds nonfiction fascinating, what audiobook narrators need to be aware of, and how directors can work with voice actors to really make them shine. Today, I'm talking to multi-award-winning narrator and coach, Sean Pratt, who has voiced over a thousand audiobooks for companies including Penguin, Blackstone, Tantor, and HarperCollins, in the hopes that when you're casting a narrator for your next project, you really listen to what they bring to the party. Hello, Sean. Hello. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and why you became an audiobook narrator?
1: Uh, let's see the E! Hollywood Entertainment biography. Uh, grow, born and raised in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, my parents were uh, Okies from way back. Dust Bowl Okies is what they call them. And they came back at the in the turn of the last century. Uh, my father's family is from Scotland and also Cherokee Indian, which you can obviously see by looking at me. <laughs> and then my mother's family is Irish and English. And um, But I started acting in the theater at school and in the city when I was around 10 years old. And got the bug and knew I wanted to be – I always knew I was going to be an actor. And uh, so I went to college, uh, the College of Santa Fe in New Mexico, to get my BFA, uh, my Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting. And by the time I graduated – oh, and I was at BADA, uh, the British American Drama Academy, for a semester in 1987 in London. That was a really wonderful experience. And um, had wonderful teachers there, by the way. Diana Quick was one of my drama teachers. No, Jeffrey really. Hutchins wow. For comedy, um, Ben Benison from the RSC Gosh. for movement, and um, Michael Billington from the Guardian was our <laughs> our drama critic. Yeah, I had a really we had a really wonderful uh, you know faculty uh, for that <laughs> semester. Um, but uh, by the time I graduated, all I wanted to do was classical theater. That was it. I didn't really want to do movies, although I have done did movies right out of school. But I just wanted to do classics, and so I kicked around the Southwest for a couple of years, doing Shakespeare in the Park, and like I said, doing westerns because I had very long hair and I knew how to ride a horse and shoot a gun and wear a cowboy hat. And uh, on I stage? No, uh, no, no, in, in movies. In <laughs> I was movies. gonna say, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I was in a number. I was in um. There was an Italian television series for a comic book character. I think his name was called Lucky Luke. the name of the character anyway i was in a number of episodes and you know i had one line you know they're here watch out but it was great and then went to new york in 1990 and started working off broadway with a classical repertory theater that had its own resident company called the pearl theater i was the resident male juvenile so i played all the young prince roles and then i worked regionally around the country doing classics and i did that for gosh well 15 years in total But around 1996, I moved down to Washington, D.C. to I'd met uh, my girlfriend, soon to be wife, Shannon Parks at the time. And we uh, settled down into just south of there in Alexandria and settled down to have a family. And when I got down there, I thought I could continue to do theater work. But it all sort of fell through and I was really at loose ends. And I remembered a conversation I'd had. Several years before when I was in Washington, D.C. doing a play, this young actor who now is a playwright in New York, David Hilder, I said, so what do you do when you're not working? We were backstage during rehearsals at the Shakespeare Theater there. And he said, I narrate audiobooks. I said, what's that? <laughs> so he, over, you know, a cup of coffee, he told me about it in the backstage where we were just killing time. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And by the end of the run of the show, he said, well, if you ever move down here, you know, give me a call. I could introduce you to some people. Well... Sure enough, and sort of one thing led to another. And originally, audiobooks for me were just going to be one more thing I did as a performer. I wasn't going to be doing anything different, you know, than I was normally doing, which is, you know, you work on a play and you work a couple days on a movie and you do a modeling gig and an industrial training film and an audiobook. But I happened to be getting into the industry when the like the rocket was leaving the launch pad. 1996 was a big year because in a few years it was all about to go digital. And that was the key to the explosion because suddenly you didn't need cassettes or even CDs anymore, really. You you know, digital download, but also just the, like, the, the technology. Mm-hmm. And so that's where it started. So I, I didn't have designs like my students do today. Like, I want to be this. This is what I want to do. I'm like, it's just going to be one more thing.
0: So, what kind of audiobooks did you did you do at the start? Were they fiction? Were they
1: fact? Were they or um, they were initially they were fiction. I, I my very first two clients were Blackstone Audio and books on tape, and right out of the shoot, I was doing a list material for a while, but I but it was sort of sporadic, and I kept nagging them that I wanted to do more. And then I found a third client, which is no longer around, a company out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I did four books a month for them. They were serials, like a series. Wow. And each book was exactly six hours long that had been edited down. And they sold them on cassettes at truck stops across the United States. So I like, for instance, I did a series of Westerns. There were 50 of them and each one had a different name of a state with an exclamation point. So, like Wyoming or Florida or whatever. And so the story would start or finish in that state. And that was the gimmick for the entire series. Oh but my I God, was what a doing. Brilliant idea. Yeah. So I did, And I did science fiction and did detective series and so on. But it was a couple of years into it. I wanted, I just needed more work. And I kept nagging them. And then they started sending me nonfiction. And that was really where I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't think I would. But at that point I was just I just needed the work and then uh, the challenge of doing it was the same reason I got into classical theater it was because it's difficult. It's not easy to do.
0: Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. So who did you learn your craft from?
1: I didn't have a coach. I just learned on the job. I, I you know, I listened to a ton of audiobooks. I listened to my peers and my colleagues in the DC area. There's a lot of narrators from that area. Kate Redding, Michael Kramer, Grover Gardner. Gosh, there's a ton. And of course, it was because there was the School for the Blind is based there and the Library of Congress. A lot of those people would also narrate for the Library of Congress as an archival thing. Those those recordings are never released. They're yeah. kept in the, the bomb-proof shelter out in Tennessee uh, for future generations. But there's a lot of narrators, and it's a huge theater town. It's the second largest theater market in the country. Wow. And... Um, so I listened and I learned. I learned on the job. I'm sort of an, I guess you could say I'm an autodidact in that way. So you're, because you are a coach now.
0: Not only are you a narrator, you're mm. a coach. And in fact, I, I did a, um, I did do a weekend workshop with you a couple of years ago with you and Johnny Heller. Yes. And you were, as you just said, concentrating. You were doing the nonfiction part of that. That was the part that you were teaching. And you were saying that you, were, you warmed to nonfiction more than you did to fiction. Is that fair
1: or...? Yeah, well, it it was it came at the right time. I'd been narrating pretty steadily. I started in '96, so around 2000, I'd been doing it for about three and a half, four years, mainly fiction, a lot of fiction. And what was happening for me was with the ma- I wasn't on the major publishers' radar list in a way because uh, very soon afterwards, um, Books on Tape was purchased by Random House Audio, and they just dropped almost all of their out-of-town narrators and I was one of those that got dropped so suddenly I went from three clients to two and so I was on the scramble to find new material to keep me going because I really liked the you know by that time uh, you know we'd started a family and I wanted to be able to stay home with the kids and and still you know go work on movies when I wanted to and we wanted to buy a house and those things were big drivers and working at home as you know makes a big difference and so the the nonfiction what I liked about it like I said was its difficulty and, and at first, I was, and then I listened to a lot of nonfiction, and most of it, I didn't like what I was listening to. So it was the same, you know. It's that thing about when, when you see really bad Shakespeare performed, you're like, "Oh my god, oh that's awful!" And then you <laughs> how did you, he ever catch on? Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> but you, you know, you're you're trying, but when you have to confront it as an actor, you realize just how difficult it is to perform. Yeah, and and so I thought. I like this more. And like I said, this, the, the other thing about the fiction was I was getting a little tired with my, what I call my gallery of funny voices. Mm. You run out of voices that are interesting and you're doing lots of, you know, just, it's, it can get repetitive. Because by the time 2000 had rolled around, I probably had already recorded 200 books maybe. Wow. Okay. You know, and easily. And I've always said that I, I would rather listen to an audio book or read a book for actually about how they built the pyramids than about zombies or mummies chasing people around the pyramids. So you you would have thought,
0: if you're approaching fiction and nonfiction, you would have thought that fiction was more complex,
1: more difficult to do. Well, what I tell my students about is that every time you purchase a product or service, you come up with a little yardstick for yourself to decide whether that thing was worth your time and money. So like, you know, did my new glasses have the correct prescription in them? Did, did the new uh, car I bought, does it drive and have all the bells and whistles I paid for? And out of that, you decide that was worth my time and money. And so for me, when I listen to an audiobook, book, the yardstick I use is pretty simple. Was the audiobook listening experience entertaining? Now, your definition of entertaining and mine can be different, but I think when we listen to an audiobook, we just want to sit back and have the narrator take us on that journey. So when you look at the, from that perspective, a piece of written fiction to achieve that goal is pretty straightforward because a piece of written fiction is also designed to be entertaining. And the author uses all these storytelling tools that then I get to use as the narrator in my performance, the plot and the characters and the and the character voices and the dialogue and all that. It's like a big bag of storytelling tools. But in nonfiction, we have very few tools. There's, you know, and and... What we really have to work with is the author's voice, as it were, giving us their intellectual argument and a logical progression. So by the time they finish the book, they've revealed their truth to us. And there's not any zombies or funny voices or love scenes in that. So the the number of tools you have to work with in the performance itself has been greatly reduced. And then, of course, there's all these presuppositions or mistaken suppositions that people make coming to it as a performer. A lot of people equate nonfiction with non-acting. Yeah. And that's just not the case.
0: Yeah, because that's something that comes up quite a lot, I think, in your work. Because you, you, see it, it's, because you say it's not just reading,
1: it's a performance. It's like giving a TED Talk. I don't, in my mind, I don't literally become the author as a character because I'm not trying to mimic their speech in any way. I use the author as an archetype. So I'm a, I'm a physics professor who's going to talk about X, Y, Z, about finding a black hole or something. Or I'm a, I'm a business coach going to teach you how to be a better manager with, you know, how to deal with your employees, that kind of thing. And then you give yourself a realistic setting, someplace that you can picture yourself in, a conference room or a theater or I don't know what. And then you have an audience. And I always teach, my, what I do and what I teach my students is that when we narrate nonfiction, it's always to an audience of people, not one oh, person. Oh, Because that's quite different
0: then from a lot of yes. um,
1: narration. Yeah, and it, yeah, commercial Austin, VO. Yeah. yeah right. Commercial VO, they teach you to, to read to one person. And there, it's something that I just brought with me. I know as a theater performer, it's much easier for me to maintain my sense of drive and enthusiasm in the performance when it's a full house of people who are very interested in the you know watching me perform as opposed to just one person that just sort of feels too intimate to me
0: and is that different if you do fiction if you do fiction do you imagine one listener or is it the
1: same for you both either way you know it's interesting Uh, it depends on the piece sometimes it feels like one person sometimes it feels like i'm doing a show and tell kind of a thing to a group of people sometimes it feels like i am the movie Am all the pieces of the movie, you know, happening, you know, it, it, but in turn, but I'm doing it. I'm suddenly, on the narrator telling you when you watch a movie and suddenly I'm in that scene. So it, it just depends on the piece. Okay. Um, but yeah, so the nonfiction is definitely more difficult to achieve the goal of being entertaining. When you have people who uh, think that nonfiction equals non-acting, uh, that there's fewer storytelling tools involved, and also just having the stamina just the stamina of trying to wade through, uh, you were you were saying before we started about this, uh, it was a business book you did? Yes,
0: it was an entrepreneur's book, Entrepreneurs Through History. So
1: yeah. I, do you think, oh, this will be easy. These are little, little profiles, biographies, and suddenly you run smack into a whole bunch of Japanese <laughs> or m- mathematical equations, and somehow you have to make that sound effortless. You never forget that the more effortless and carefree the delivery, the smarter you make the author seem to the listener. The more slow and plotting you become, you know, the less clever the author comes off to the listener. And they know it's you speaking, but they can't help but make that unconscious connection between the narration was bad, so I didn't like the book. Yeah. You can see that in those reviews on Audible you get.
0: Yeah, yeah. And actually, you're right. I'm thinking about it. You know, there are often in um, nonfiction books, you get things like, you know, little diagrams that presumably you as a narrator have to work your way around
1: in terms of being able to bring those to life. Right. And it has to sound effortless. You are the voice of the expert. Yeah, You are the expert. And would an expert clunk their way through something like that? No, they would just roll off their tongue. And that's not an easy thing to do. You know, when you're having to speak a foreign language, or explain mathematical equations, or, or just the nomenclature of of a certain profession, and that's always the case in nonfiction. That never goes away.
0: And do you think that because your if your background as an actor did that, um, did that bring an extra cachet to to doing nonfiction, or do you think anybody any background?
1: Um, I, yes, it did for me personally. Having you know, having done not not only Shakespeare, but Shaw and Sophocles and Marivaux, and you learn dealing with translations and archaic language and and how to make that accessible to a listener uh, or an audience member. Yeah, that takes a lot of technique. And I pulled every bag of, of tricks, you know, out of my bag of tricks, I pulled every single one out to, to teach myself how to do this. Um, but for my students, it's more a matter of they need to be good storytellers. I get a lot of emails from people saying, well, I have a very nice voice. I'm like, yes, you do. Are you a good storyteller, though? Or I get the inverse of that, which is, well, I've got a really sort of odd voice. Do you think I'm a good... I was like, no, your voice... You said, yeah, if you have a very particular voice, it can narrow the field of material you can narrate. Like if you have a very strong regional accent from somewhere. Or let's say I had a student, this woman in her 50s, I guess, she had a really heavy kind of smoker's gravelly voice. And that limited the kind of genres she could work in. But ultimately, though, we all have limitations as narrators because not every voice fits every genre. So you just accept that and move forward. But the, to me, it's the storytelling technique and it's the technique that I've spent 20, almost 25 years learning. And, now yeah. I teach.
0: and actually on that, you, so most of the voice artists that come to you are already trained voices. They they might be doing a different genre, but they, they are trained people. So why would they need a coach specifically to tell them how to tell a story? You would have thought that's a fairly fundamental thing.
1: Well, in the world of nonfiction, it's not just telling the story. If it were that easy, yeah, it'd be straightforward. But now you're also throwing, like, like I said, in foreign languages and You know, how do you say the prime minister of Uruguay's name or the mathematical equation? And it's about the goal ultimately with the delivery. And this is something else. The goal with the delivery, and I use the TED Talk analogy again, is that my students need to sound like themselves. Miles Davis, the jazz trumpeter, has a great quote. He said, it takes a long time to learn how to sound like yourself. (laughs) And in order to do that, you have to learn reading technique, which is thinking faster, then reading faster to the point that you read slightly ahead of yourself, so you're taking in the information in chunks, but it's coming out in the natural rhythm, melody, and tempo of your own voice, and that is not an easy thing to do. That's, it's not an easy thing to learn. It takes a lot of time to get that. Yeah. it's easy to have the narrator voice. I have a student right now who, you know, I, I've not now. I've had many students who come from a, a, a announcer background. They be on the BBC or in America, and they have their announcer voice, which is not their voice. No. So I have to teach them this new thing. We just want you to, see you to sound like you. And that's a, not an easy thing to, especially when you're using someone else's language. So that's a tough thing to unpick, actually.
0: If, they, if they're if they into yes. habits, that's...
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. They And they have, yes, especially My especially my announcers can have habits I really have to break them out of. And I say, yeah, there's an exercise I make them talk about the, one of their favorite things, trying to be as enthusiastic and engaging and entertaining as possible for about 10 to 15 minutes in a recording. And I said, that's our benchmark. That's, I'm, that's what I'm measuring you against in your own performances. Do you sound like that? Because when you can sound like that, you can, then you, the nuance of your natural voice and your own natural delivery is far more interesting than anything you could come up with as your quote narrator voice. Yeah, but that's a technique, and it takes so so even you know I have students who, yeah who come to me who do commercial VO, they do documentaries, they do cartoons and video games, and I tell them I said everything you're about to learn is going to be brand new because also we're dealing with genre issues in nonfiction. How do you do uh, self help or religious material or? Like I said, how do you do a cookbook or a how-to book? Yeah, actually, cookbooks. And how do you make that interesting for the listener? Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, amazing, actually. So and in your your sort of technique, you talk about these four hats. Am I right? You have four hats of a good audiobook narrator. So what are are those four different
1: parts then? The narrator, the director, the engineer, and the producer. So going from back to front like that, you start out as the producer. And what you're doing there is you're dealing with you know, contracts and timelines and negotiation of contract, you know, like money and the, the nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. And does it fit into your, you know, how does it fit into your schedule? And so you're and then you're also lining up your own team, as it were, depending on the job, of course. When I work privately, I have my own team, a proofer and an editor um, or engineer, really. And then they have, you know, we work in a certain way and I have to get them on board to make sure they're on within their timeline. And it also meets the client's timeline. When I work for a major publisher, that's all done in-house. Yeah. The engineering, by and large, the one thing I force all my students to learn is an editing style called punch and roll. Oh, yeah. And it's absolutely essential. And, of course, I learned it back in the days of tape, um, you know, when you would rewind the tape and then punch into the recording and roll over the mistake. But otherwise, you'll never make any money doing this because it's one thing to do an open record when you're doing a 30 or 60-second radio spot. Yeah you can come back afterwards and just edit it down. But the minute you're talking about a 4, 5, 10, 20-hour book, no, no, it's never going to happen.
0: Yeah, it was the first thing I, I remember having to learn <laughs> because I was thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, you, you want to end up at the end of each session with something that is broadly a clean edit. Uh, you know, t- right. th- the, the idea yeah. of actually going back and then editing out all your mistakes, nightmare.
1: Yeah, and so, and so there's, there's only one company, I, Random House Audio likes to do an open record with a director. During the production of it. So I just turned it on and the director and I work together and we send that morning session off to the engineer. The director's making notes on their end. Right. Um, But I always offer, I'm like, I could do a punch record for you. I'm like, nope, that's the way they like to do it. And as the saying goes, if you hire the band, you get to pick the song. So So that's really the director's portion of it. Uh, And the engineering, rather, I'm sorry. The directing portion is the research involved, talking over with the client. How are we going to deal with these various issues like charts and illustrations, appendix, footnotes, citations, sidebar boxes? You know, all those little things have to be discussed beforehand and and agreed to. And you advocate from your position as the director, okay, this is the, you know, the, the term we use is listener-friendly. Yeah. And if it is listener-friendly, then we, um, that, what does that mean? It's little things like... You know, expanding your abbreviations or defining an acronym the first time you use it or enumerating bullet points. These are little things that people don't really think about from a writer's perspective or a book publisher. But they're absolutely essential for the listener because the moment the listener goes, what? What's going on? They're out of the book. And then the last bit is the narrator, the performance part, finding the author's voice. <laughs> the last yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, what yeah. talk, that, yeah. talk, talk, blah, blah, blah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so, so sometimes a narrator might have to be all those things, and then there might be another job where they are only one of those things or three of those things or two. Or, Absolutely. But, but but, the knowledge, so so you're getting them to think about the possibility of all of those things at any given
1: time. Yes, yeah, so I make them uh, learn the basic engineering steps for whatever software they're using. Yeah. Because I tell them, is that if you can learn to do it yourself and it's really not that hard once you hire someone to set it up for you, then you can charge the client for it, you know, as opposed to you paying somebody else to do something you don't want to mess with. I tell them, I'm like, look, we're not recording Dark Side of the Moon here. We're just recording your voice. And it's the same se- series of buttons to click and you hit go and then go have a cup of coffee and you come back and chapter 12 is processed and ready to go. So I yes, I I want them to learn those other pieces as well. And a lot of what I teach as a coach surrounds bits and pieces of those things. Although I don't try to teach them everything because I don't know everything. I don't even pretend to. But I know a lot of people who know a lot of things. So I, if I, if I hit a wall with something, I'm like, go talk to so-and-so. They'll help you out. Yeah. Well, that's it.
0: I mean, has COVID-19, as this year, 2020, has 2020 changed anything in your world, in the
1: audiobook world? You know, it's, it's funny. I was, uh, I was a little fearful back in March. I was, um, uh, so fast forward, I was married and then divorced, and my f- kids are grown. My kids are 30 and 20 now. And so uh, the lovely lady who uh, I see here in England, Anna Clements, who is my girlfriend, who's also an audiobook, wonderful audiobook narrator, um, I was seeing her in March, and I got back to the United States four days before they shut everything down. And it was totally by accident. I just happened to be... That was the day. And we saw COVID getting bigger and bigger over here in England. And I thought, oh, my God. And when I landed, I remember talking with Anna. I was really nervous. Like, what's going to happen with our work? Yeah. Our industry. And also with my students. I had no idea. Were they all going to call me up and say, oh, we're going to stop because... And the irony has been that, at least from my little corner of the world and with my students, it hasn't stopped anything. Yeah. my, I, I actually... You know, I, at the beginning of the year, I think I had around 70 students, 75, and now I have 100. And they just... Well, and they were people like the theater actor in New York who's... She's done a couple of audiobooks, and now her theater's closed, and she needs to... She's going to get serious about this, so she comes to me. Or um, the, the the guy who was an accountant in Chicago, who's also done... He's done several books, but he feels frustrated because he's not moving forward, and now he's only working half time. So it actually... In a way, the COVID and its economic effects have benefited me personally as a coach. Yeah. And as far as books, they just keep coming. So now, granted, I am also, you know, much further along in my career and my client base is much broader. Yeah. So and I do far fewer books, too.
0: I mean, there are fewer in-studio gigs now.
1: Are are a lot of audiobook narrators
0: working from home?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm one of those. I'm I'm sort of a freak in that way because when I started, I began work as a home-based studio narrator. Up until maybe last year, I could count the number of times I went into a studio to narrate a book on one hand. Wow. Okay. And it's still that way. Now it's all remote. So, like with Random House, for say, I have the director's on Skype, and he's listening in, or he's he was patched right into my microphone, depending on the setup. And so I'm narrating, and then he just he or she just jumps in and says, "Oh, you you know you missed that word, or I thought I heard something there," and we just I just you know. Uh, so once again, if you, for a lot of my students, the COVID has allowed them to start working with bigger publishers because those publisher studios in L.A., Chicago, New York have been shut down. They still want to keep their the number of releases going. And so there's only so many actors in that town they work with. So they've been reconnecting with out-of-town narrators. And also the technology is so much better. I mean, the microphones, the digital... What's it's it's so much better than back in the day when I started the quality.
0: Yeah. And it's actually it's interesting. Do you prefer working with somebody the other end? Do you feel it's more of a performance or does it not worry you either way?
1: At first, it really was off putting the very first few times Uh. I went in Washington, D.C. Because I mean, I was used to going back in the day, going into a studio to cut, you know, radio commercials and things like that. But to sit for hours with somebody. It was just an odd thing because, once again, I was working at home. So I had my comfy pants on and my little <laughs> pillow and my cup of tea. And I could take, you know, I could take breaks. And, you know, if I needed to go take a nap, I could. I just work this evening. But you can't yeah. do that. But um, no, actually, it's it's actually I've learned it's quite freeing now, which I wasn't I wouldn't have thought so. I have um, with this. La- I just did a book for Random House. Ironically, a book I would recorded twice before for two other publishers because no. it's in the public domain.
0: That's amazing. Okay. Yeah,
1: Uh, Grow Rich Through the Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Dr. Joseph Murphy. (laughs) Written in, I think, like 1940-something. Wow. And um, I did his entire catalog for another client years ago, and then before that, that particular book for a client who's no longer around. But So on that one, you know, uh, yeah, I could just sit there and just focus on the text without thinking about Punch and Roll or anything else, and knowing that if I screwed up, he was going to catch it. And so... I think for that ten-hour book, I had twenty pickups. Yeah, so now it's yeah, it's become, yeah, <laughs> it's it's become freeing. Oh yeah, yeah. no, I, you, my, you know, there's this mistaken metric, and I see it posted all the time on, uh, like the Facebook narrator groups, when people brag about how few pickups they have, and I'm like, I said that's great, you know. Granted, it's less work, and I understand that, but that's not a mark of how great you are. That's just, a, I mean, that's one aspect of being a narrator. Let me put it mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. I tell my students, you don't get a gold star for your ability to read from the top of the page to the bottom of the page without making a mistake. You get a gold star for being entertaining. That's it. And if it takes you 20 takes to get through that paragraph to make it entertaining, then that's what it takes. You know, that's one of those things that, say, working on a movie or I suppose working on a record, you know, recording something has in common. You do it until it's Right where you want it, and then you just keep moving on.
0: And you also were well, and this quite this surprised me actually. You also work with um, authors who want to self-narrate. I do. So that's interesting. How do, is that a different challenge? A different kind of a challenge?
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah, in fact, I've got two authors lined up for I think January. Um, so I, I this I sort of fell into this. I really wasn't looking for it. Uh, I, I was getting approached by some smaller audio companies. One in particular, Elephant Audio, out of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Kenny Papa Constantino, uh, who owns that company, approached me about uh, helping prep some because au- he did, he was doing a lot of author read material, and he said, "You've got to help me out here because they don't know what they're doing." And I said, "Yeah, I I I know. <laughs> I've heard it." Yeah, and and it's it's the the mistaken. The mistake that authors make is they think that writing a book and performing the book are the same discipline, and they're not. Not that they couldn't do it. I'm just saying that they are two very different things. There are authors that are amazing storytellers and those who aren't. And then you've got, you know, there's that combination of ego gets in the way or this is my baby. I've worked on it for X number of months or years, and I want it. I want it. And in the end, that's not the most savvy business decision for the audiobook to be released. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very different kind of coaching. It's really more about the main thing I focus, frankly, is uh, stamina with them. I make them I give them some basic concepts that I teach early on in my own coaching with narrators to get them to understand the text and a different concept, different paradigm. But mainly it's like, look, you need to narrate out loud, at least two to three hours a day. And I, what, we, what we try to do is I try to get them about two weeks before they're going to narrate. So they're building up. They're, it's like running for a marathon. Yeah. They're building and building. And so the idea is I get them to peak right when they go in. Because I tell them, I said, look, I know you, you think that three hours is a lot of narration, but trust me when I tell you, on the day, depending on the budget and the time, you may be in there for six to eight hours until the thing is done. So I'm actually giving you a break. And you know, and and I teach them about scoring text and diction and breathing, but mainly it's about stamina. It's about yeah. that. And and we go over the text together. And I, I once again, I, you know, they're in a catbird seat because I tell them, I said, well, we sometimes we encounter odd things. I'm like, well, it is your book. If you want to change it, you can, <laughs> because it is, you know, <laughs> it's your song and your band. You can do whatever the heck you want with it. So, yeah. But yeah, it's a very different. It's a different kind of style of coaching and. It's nice when, I, uh, when the author comes back to me after the fact and they say, that was so much more difficult than I thought it was going to be, but I'm really glad that I had yeah, worked with you, me, uh, to get myself up to speed on that because I would have really fallen on my face. So I know I've done the right thing.
0: And is it usually, do they come to you privately or do they come to you via their, um, their publishers? It depends.
1: depends. Okay. You know, I just uh, two words publishing, which is a Christian audio company that's uh, founded by a former student of mine, Clayton Butcher. He just contacted me about an author uh, that he wants me to get ready for a book, I think in January. And then there's another author uh, privately who's contacted me and she, she's a public speaker, uh, but her book is rather long and um, she's not, sh- and there's a lot of tricky things in it. She goes, how do we do XYZ? I said, okay, well, we'll set up some time and we'll work our way through it. So it, it's fun. It's a nice change of pace. It's a I look at it as a coaching challenge to get somebody up and running that quickly. Yeah, it is. It's impressive, actually,
0: to to, to go from 0 to 60, you know, to to be able to do that. And when you're working with, um, what, what skills do you think that good audiobook producers need to have?
1: Think of the producer as like, for lack of a better, the mother hen. You know, he or she, they're responsible for all the moving parts. So the EP, executive producer, and their assistant, they're lining up the timeline, they're talking with the, the engineering department, depending on, you know, with the company. The QC department for proofing. They're talking about timeline with their their boss about when this book has to come out. They're budgeting time allowances. They're budgeting money and they're they're finding talent and, and they're talking with the director sometimes or the casting person within the house so they they have a huge number of little jobs to or um, not little jobs yeah little jobs to do that they interact with all these different people the director's different the director's job is very specific they are you know they do they read the book they do the research it's on them to make sure the pronunciations are right not the talent um, even though I still like for me I still do all my own research just because of a habit and mainly it's about, I think, a good director, well, depending on the client. In other words, if they're going to be directing a narrator who's an actor, it's the ability to speak our nomenclature, our language, you know, to talk to us as an as a, like a theater director, director does to a theater actor. Uh, or if they're dealing with an author, mainly it's babysitting to make sure the authors, they don't burn them out after a day or two, you know, to sort of... And trying to get some, you know, I've gosh, I have heard so many, (laughs) so many horror stories over, over beers about, you know, trying to get this, a certain author to coax a performance out of them because they didn't prepare at all. They just showed up. So the directors, you know, I've been approached a couple of times. Do you want to direct? I'm like, oh God, no, I would, no, (laughs) no, 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 no. I would rather take a beating than direct, uh, direct anybody.
0: But the background of then a director, so you were saying that actually directors who can speak the same language as you, do they come from theatre backgrounds, some of them, or publishing backgrounds, or does it differ?
1: I th- they come from performance backgrounds, theatre, uh, mainly theatre, the ones, or, or film. I say that. Also, it can be an acquired skill. But it is that thing. They have to learn to speak our language. You know, when you say, OK, the subtext there is not coming out, or take the beat here, but the emphasis on this line here... And if you want to do that sigh, do it on this word, not in the pause. It's that kind of. It's that detailed, is it? So they they can sound the creative be. from you, yeah. Yeah, okay. but other t- you know. But in my experience, I mean, these are story. I mean, in my experience, I since I do mainly nonfiction, I sit down with the director before they record a couple of days before, and I, you know, we look at the project, and we I ask specific questions about. So if we're doing a piece of religious material. You know, what I teach, what I do is we always say chapter and verse. We, you know, we don't say uh, certain things inside of uh, a citation. Some things we do, some things we don't. Okay, what what do you want to do here? What's the client want? Or what about these sidebar boxes? How do you want to deal with that? And it's little niggly bits. So on the day, we don't have to. We've already discussed it. And we're off and running. And then they're checking my audio quality and that I don't screw up. Every so often, they'll go, yeah, you lost the plot on that one. You lost the thread of that idea because the sentence was really long. Yeah. You know, and so that's what they're, for me, that's what they, uh, they're they really invaluable for. They really come through for me.
0: And when when you're looking for new talent, when a director or a producer, in fact, when they're looking for new talent, how do they know that they're getting the right <laughs> how do they know that they're getting the right kind of narrator out there how do you how do you know that your narrator that you're choosing they might have the right voice that you want but how do you right. know they've got the right background the right training
1: well if if they do their if they do their job at the casting director which is also another job that's not really the director's job it's the casting director's job the casting director and the producer so They'll take the time to do a little research on, you know, like what other titles has that narrator done? What's their average? I mean, they look like they look at Audible ratings. I mean, I had a conversation with Guy Oldfield, who's uh, the head casting person over at Macmillan. And he said, yeah, those reviews and your average scores, those do matter. We look at the kind of material you've done. We listen to your demos. And they also, you know, they put their ear to the ground. If they hear that someone's really easy or hard to work with, that can influence it. And, of course, they're also trying to satisfy the client. So a lot of authors nowadays have gotten much more savvy about if they can't narrate their own book, they want to have a say in the casting of it. But then, of course, a good casting director will only give them five choices of their top five people. Each one of those people, you know, a good I always say a good casting director will give you five ringers and one new person they're trying out. Yeah. just You know, they let that new person have a shot to come in. But the idea is that any of those five men or women can do the book you know, that's what I've learned as an actor and what casting directors in theatre and film taught me as well. Yeah, I can see that 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 would absolutely make sense. So, yeah, so you can find the right voice, but if you find out this person's a real pain in the neck to work with, then, you know, or you might take a chance on somebody because you've heard they're really good and you like their demo and it seems like the right fit, so you give it a shot. But the other thing, too, is when you work for a major publisher unless you're extraordinarily lucky, the first book you do with them will be a short one because it's still an audition if you really think about it. The first book I did with Random House with a director on the phone was a short piece and it was a B-list title. And I knew what it was. You know, I know it was, you know, it's it's like when you get cast at a new theater, you know, you've been playing really good parts at the other theaters, but you come in and you're going to be, you know, Sir, what's a lot? You know, f- with five lines, just want to see if you're a nice person to work with, and then the next time you come in, they'll they'll bring you up a notch. That's just you being ask. smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: So, because the because the interesting thing is, that, and particularly this year, as you know, going back to that uh, question I was asking about, um, has COVID nineteen changed anything? Mm-hmm. The, the industry is awash with people um, who are happy, very happy to call themselves audiobook narrators, but may <laughs> not have the sort of experience or the sort of training or the or the background. Um, are there any particular questions that a producer can ask new talent that will help sort out them? Well, the men from the boys, the fact from the fiction, the, the, the right um, people for you?
1: I don't even think they take the time to ask the questions. They just, you know, if you, if you live in this, if you swim in this ocean, the fact that somebody's done 20, 30, 40, 50 books, that tells you immediately that they know what it's like to be in the booth behind the mic. Um, if it's a, you know, and you know that even though they might be a really well-known theater or film actor, if they've only done one or two books, you're still probably rolling the dice, no matter how famous they might be. So, you know, it was, it's a totally different venue. I mean, as I learned, I, I always tell uh, my, the very first recording session I ever did as a narrator. I was doing Cabbages and Kings by O. Henry. It's a series of short stories. It's a very famous series of short stories by him. And I'd read the book and I done all my prep, these wonderful fiction stories. And on my first session, I had a monitor, okay, outside the booth. So Bernadette was listening in on headphones, and then when I would make a mistake, she'd go, Tchick. uh, you said street light. That's street lamp." Stchick. Okay, thank you, Bernadette. All right, Brr-tchick. you know, and then street light, and I'm going on. And in the three-hour chunk of time I had set aside in the booth that I'd rented out at that studio to work in, in three hours of work, I did about 15 minutes of finished audio. <laughs> so I tell, <laughs> I, I, when I was done. I went back to uh, my apartment in Alexandria and I walk in the door and I drop my bags and I sort of collapse on the carpet. I'm staring there, you know, sort of splayed out on the ground, staring up the ceiling. And uh, my girlfriend comes over (laughs) to me and she's like, are you okay?" And I said, this is so much fucking harder than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. And it was it was so much harder. And but I but I had nothing else on my plate. So I had to take what was in front of me.
0: Yeah, but and I mean, so I actually, went back the next
1: day and did twenty minutes, you know, and that kind of thing.
0: But that's good to know, actually, because I think a lot of people, um, when they're when they're first starting out, they hear that you know people say, well, you you probably have to recall for three hours in the booth to get you know ninety minutes of, of finished. So oh yeah, you, you, can, you know, yeah. and that's true. But we're we're talking there about you know experienced narrators, actually. Obviously, some people are going to be higher than that, but but that that's a fairly yeah. standard sort of. Uh, so to actually find that that you started oh. and did fifteen minutes in. Oh, it was awful! It was awful. <laughs>
1: That's good. I was exhausted. I, had, I was, it was like a, a leaf. I was so shaky. Oh. It was so stressful because, because then you get wound up and you keep making more mistakes and then you are conscious of the last mistake so you're not really looking at the thing you're saying. Or you get the first sentence done and now you start the second sentence and you go, hey, I didn't screw up on the first <laughs> sentence. And you start to go a little bit faster. And you get through the second sentence. and You think, oh, if I could just keep going, I won't screw up. And then as if that's the most important thing, right? And you do three or four sentences and then suddenly you stumble. So now you have to pick yourself up and start all over again. And you repeat that cycle again and again and again. And it's just <laughs> exhausting. And the irony is you have to learn how to slow down in order to speed up slow down your, de- your speed, de- speed of delivery yes. in order to speed up the total amount of time you can record in the yes. booth. Yes, but, but not too much. you're The one thing I, I, I really bang on my students about is tempo. I'll, I actually make them do certain speed exercises to speak very quickly, for them anyway. And they think, oh my God, no one's going to understand what I'm saying. And I say, that's actually incorrect. There's always a, a trade-off involved between speed on one side and nuance and precision on the other. Nuance is the performance, and precision is diction and breathing. And you're always trading one for the other. But eventually, you learned that you can go faster and maintain nuance and precision. And they think, well, I, you know, I didn't even think you could stay up with me. And I said, normal speech is between, or slow speech is between 80 and 100 words a minute. Normal speech is between 100 and I think 125. What they consider to be fairly quick is between 125 and 150. And fast is one up to 175. But the, human, the the brain can process audio or speech, spoken language, at well over 200 words a minute.
0: It actually broke my heart when I discovered that a lot of people listen to audiobooks on, you know, double speed. <laughs> it broke my
1: heart when I discovered
0: people did that. But, you know.
1: Well, and I, I, I use that. I say, so, go faster. Quit acting and, you know, or quit, you know, hanging out in the pauses and start to pick up that tempo. I mean, that's something I definitely carried over with from my years of uh, being a theater actor. At the Pearl, the artistic director, Shep Sobel, he would, (laughs) every so often he would, let's say we start a play, and the first act was running, say, 20 minutes on a Tuesday. And by the time we get to Sunday, it's running like 25 minutes. And it's not a comedy. It's just running 25 minutes. And so he'd come (laughs) into the dressing room like, hi, guys, how are you going? Hi, Shep. Everybody ready for the night show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he'd stop, and he'd just sort of stare at his watch for five minutes until one of us like, okay, Shep, we got it. He's like, you put five minutes of silence in my play. Take it out. <laughs> and, you know, at the time, I thought he was being a bit of a jerk, but I've come to appreciate the what tempo can really mean in a performance, that you have to earn that pause. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I tell them, "You said, you can't... The moment you start going so fast that I can't understand you is when your diction starts to break down. You just have to learn how to think faster and let it come out. At the no- I mean, think about how fast both of us are talking. Yeah, absolutely. And people will be able to understand that. And yet, if you wrote this same thing out and narrated it, people would go at a much slower pace.
0: So, if you had one tip, just one tip to give to an audiobook director in terms of working with
1: narrators, what would your one top tip be? Hmm. Find out what will make them the most comfortable during the recording process that's my one big tip because the minute the narr- minute the talent gets tense just it can snowball very very quickly and then they they just start over analyzing and they get tense and they can get aggressive or defensive and then it's no longer about the book it's about this these two egos going back and forth yeah that it's something as simple as that that would be my one you know dim- and in fact I've had directors uh, Paul Rubin is a, a colleague of mine and he's directed me on uh, at least one maybe two books now and he sa- you know we were talking about that he said my job is to make is to facilitate you having the best experience possible so the book comes off as as well as possible so that would be my one my one big overarching piece of advice
0: absolutely and the one, one thing i wanted to ask you i can see i can see visually why but i just want to know the second part of this why are you called the ginger yoda
1: <laughs> so um I had been doing lots of audiobook workshops around the country in the 2000s. And then about six years ago, so around 2012, 2014, somewhere in there, I decided I wanted to do this one-on-one coaching. And I had an, uh, an early student of mine, Andrea Ems, who is now a very well-known narrator, does lots of young adult fiction and lit RPG. She was one of my early students, and one day during the course of a lesson, I said something. I gave her a bit of knowledge, and she was blown out of her socks by it. She's like, "My God, you're like you're like a Yoda, but you got red. You're like a ginger Yoda. That's what you are. You're a ginger Yoda." And then. (laughs) Word got out, as it were, and then it stuck. And then somehow the notion that when you study with me, you come to my dojo stuck with it as well. (laughs) So now you come to the Ginger Yoda dojo, and I have in my office is absolutely packed with, you know, little figurines of Yoda with red hair and coffee mugs and (laughs) bobbleheads and all sorts of wonderful gifts my students send me. So, you know, and as we say in show business, if you got it, flaunt it. So... It seemed to work. Why not? Let's go with it.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Oh Well, look, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, no, it's really, really interesting, The um, all of the tips that you've been giving, and particularly for both for narrators, but also for directors and producers, people that are trying to make these things happen. It's, you know, invaluable. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> So that's it for this episode. I've actually just finished recording an audiobook, so I can feel really smug and just go and enjoy listening to somebody else. Do subscribe to this podcast if it's been useful, and you can even leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can find me on Instagram too for more creative chat. Just search for Samantha Boffin. Until next episode, this was Talking Creative, the art of voiceover directing, and I'm Sam, voice artist and loving it. Bye. (laughs) That's it for this week on Talking Creative, the art of voiceover directing. If you're new here, do take a moment to subscribe, rate and review on your favourite podcast app or head over to talkingcreative.co.uk where you'll find the whole series so you can get the most from every single booking.